We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Raymer. Today, we welcome senior healthcare consultant, Everett Ryder. She'll talk about what it's like to be a long hauler, a COVID-19 survivor. Do you find the AMA evaluation and management guidelines confusing when it comes to reporting time? You're not alone. Shannon DeConda will explain the confusion and controversy. It's about time. Senior healthcare consultant Lori Johnson reports the outcome of the recent Coordination and Maintenance Committee. Tim Powell is on the Tuesday News Desk, and Dr. Raymer delivers her talk back. Now, here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and the guy in the background in every episode of The Office, Chuck Buck. <laughs> Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 477th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today by Find a Code, and good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck. Happy birthday, Dr. Ron Hirsch, and hello, everyone. <laughs> Very good. Well, here we are again, Erica. We're talking about COVID-19. Last Tuesday, you recall, Dr. John Fogel reported on the virus, and you know what? It seems like nothing has happened or nothing has changed since then. Well, it's getting worse and worse, especially among the unvaccinated. And as, as I said last week on this broadcast, the virus is affecting 10 times as many unvaccinated as vaccinated people. It's killed 11 times as many unvaccinated as vaccinated. And one in 500 Americans has died from COVID-19 since the pandemic began. And that does not take into account the people who have died during the pandemic of something else because they couldn't get the medical care they needed due to overcrowding and hesitance to contract COVID-19. Indeed, you're so right. In fact, in Idaho and some other states in the West, they're now on crisis care standards, meaning only those who appear to be survivors are receiving treatment. Those who don't are, of course, receiving comfort care. Yeah, I've experienced it myself here in Ohio. And one COVID-19 survivor is our special guest today, Deb Ryder. Deb contracted the deadly virus more than a year ago and survived, and she and other survivors are what they call long haulers. And Deb will report on symptoms long haulers continue to have post-COVID-19. She'll also report on how many physicians are unsure how to treat the symptoms of long haulers. And speaking of physicians, what's on your radar screen for your talkback, Dr. Reamer? I'm talking about stigmatizing language in documentation. Wow, looking forward to your talkback segment as always. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is presented by MRA, the premier provider of medical coding, auditing, and cancer registry solutions. For 35 years, hospitals and healthcare systems have chosen MRA's 100% U.S.-based solutions for their proven quality and expertise. Find your peace of mind by partnering with MRA at MRAHIS.com. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And a physician group recently attacked 340B recipients. The Community Oncology Alliance, or COA, recently lashed out at 340B hospitals. And the following statement is on their website. The Community Community Oncology Alliance, COA, believes that the 340B drug pricing program discounts should follow the patient and not be awarded to a hospital. Hospitals should only receive 340B discounts when treating uninsured, underinsured, and indigent patients. COA also believes that any 340B drug discounts that serve to create profit centers for hospitals, which is outside the intent of the 340B drug program, should be eliminated. Now, generally, the 340B program includes the following outpatient discount drugs, FDA-approved prescription drugs, over-the-counter drugs not written on a prescription, 
biological products that can be dispensed only by a prescription other than vaccines or FDA-approved insulin. A quote from HRSA, the uh, government body in charge of the 340B drug program, will give you an idea why the physician group and 340B supporters are at loggerheads. Covered entities can purchase 340B drugs for all eligible patients, including patients with Medicare or private insurance, and generate revenue if the reimbursements for the drugs from payers exceed the discounted prices they pay for the drugs. Because the 340B statute does not restrict how covered entities can use the revenue, entities can use these funds to expand the number of patients served, increase the scope of services offered to low-income and other patients, invest in capital, cover administrative costs, or for purposes HRSA does not have the statutory authority to track how many entities use, use the revenue. I'm going to go, I'm going to throw in my two cents by saying that Big Pharma hardly needs the protection of physician groups. I would also like to point out that only not-for-profit hospitals that have a large percentage of Medicaid patients qualify for the 340B drug program. The argument that nonprofit providers are creating profit centers that would not be shared would, would not be shared by the nonprofit hospitals themselves. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's September the 21st. Today, the vaccination rate in the United States for those who are fully vaccinated is now 55.4%. And a panel of experts at the FDA said anyone who is at high risk of severe COVID should receive booster shots. But of course, not everyone, they said. In the meantime, you're listening to the 477th live edition of Talked In Tuesday. Stand by. The new IntelliSearch tool from Find a Code makes finding the correct codes easier than ever before, allowing you to process more claims more accurately and in less time. IntelliSearch returns the codes related to your number or keyword search and the context and details related to those codes. See the most appropriate codes, modifiers, includes and excludes, fees, RBUs, and guidelines for your chart, resulting in a quick, clean claim. IntelliSearch processes a full block of text at once. Artificial intelligence identifies individual codes and keywords and returns them in the search results. A simple copy and paste puts the coding details you need right at your fingertips. Find a code, the most complete and easy-to-use software for coding professionals, helping you save time, increase revenue, and avoid denials. Get the new IntelliSearch tool at findacode.com talk10. That's findacode.com talk10. Here now with the Tucked In Tuesday Coding Report is our good friend, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. The Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting was held on September 14th and 15th and used all of the two days to review the proposals for new codes and addenda. CMS began with two procedure proposals that were not clinically reviewed, but comments were requested. The administration or FOSTA-Matinib what has requested an April 1st, 2022 implementation. The other proposal that did not have a clinical presentation was administration of broad consortium microbiota-based live biotherapeutic suspension. They'll need to come with an acronym for that one. The PCS recording has not been posted yet, but look for it on the Coordination and Maintenance Committee website. 
And I also provided a flyer. It's on the left-hand side of your screen. The diagnosis proposal presentation started in the afternoon of the 14th. There was a total of 47 proposals that were presented. Our own Dr. Erica Reamer voiced her opinions with others during the comment time. There were two proposals that grabbed my attention, bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome and bronchiolitis obliterans and malignant pericardial effusion, or MPE. For bronchiolitis obliterans, the use of the term syndrome seemed inconsistent. It is unknown if these are two separate conditions or if the word syndrome is a non-essential modifier. For MPE, the discussion centered around the instructional note of code-first underlying malignancy. The question which seemed to be unanswered was, would a patient be admitted for treatment of MPE without treatment of the the principal or the primary cancer site? We will wait to see what happens. New codes for April 1, 2022 deadline should be posted on February 1, 2022 with guideline updates according to the published timeframe. Now I'm going to switch it up for the listener survey. What are the topics of denials for your moms and babies? The answers are A, infant of diabetic mother, B, meconium staining, C, birth complication of mom, D, complication of baby, E, something else, F, unknown, and G, does not apply. And with that, Erica, back to you. Thank you, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant at Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck. Thanks, Erica, and thank you again, Lori Johnson. Be sure to read Lori's article in today's ICD-10 Monitor. You know, nearly everyone thought that time reporting for E&M would be ease to the American Medical Association's 2021 guidelines. Yet there are some controversial areas, as you'll hear in our E&M coding report. The Talk 10 Tuesday E&M report is sponsored by Findacode, home of the new IntelliSearch tool. Findacode is the most complete and easy-to-use software for coders, helping you save time, increase revenue, and avoid denials. More online at findacode.com slash talk10. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday E&M report is Shannon DeConda, and good morning, Shannon. Good morning, Mr. Chuck, and thank you again for allowing me to be part of the broadcast today. During today's E&M segment, what I wanted to do is talk about the time component. We've heard it said that in 2021, the time component was going to be easier. I think more importantly stated, it would be that it's going to be easier to reach the time thresholds since we can now count total time on the date of the encounter, but still time is time. The average patient encounter is still not necessarily going to take 20 to 30 minutes of physician time. And please understand that's perfectly okay. It doesn't have to if it still justifies the medical decision-making components. I mean, for example, a typical ear infection patient is still an acute uncomplicated problem, and if that patient receives Rx management, which we would expect for moderate patient management, supporting a level three, 
it wouldn't expect that that patient's going to take 20 minutes for management. So a lot of confusion has still arisen based on some of the specifics of what can be counted during the visit for total time. So I thought what we would do is review some direct questions that have been asked some of the during some of the physician trainings we've done. So here's one. Does the time I spend dictating to my scribe count toward the total time on the date of the encounter? Well, I found that question a little odd that someone is dictating to their scribe unless that's inside the room because that's what a scribe is supposed to do is uh, do document what they see, hear, and observe inside the room. And of course, that time is countable. So yes, if you are dictating to your scribe and they are documenting into the electronic health record, then yes, that time would be counted. What about uh, the, pr the provider who asked, I prefer time-based on my patients um, as they typically are complex patients. If on the date of the encounter, I call another provider and they do not call me back until the next day, could I addend the note and add this time? Well, the problem is, is that new AMA time-based rules require that we only count time on the date of the encounter. So while the work of talking to that provider could count towards the MDM components, the time of talking to that provider could not count towards the total time. So it's very important when we're working with physicians, we remind our providers that that actual work does not get negated. It just cannot count towards the total time, okay, because it is only the time on the date of the encounter. Here's another question. Will I be flagged for never using MDM-based E&M services and only use time-based services? Absolutely not. Our providers are given the flexibility to use time or MDM-based services. It's one or the other. It is up to the provider's discretion which one they choose to use. Um, some providers will find it easier to use time based on their specialties. Providers who are pediatric subspecialties will sometimes find it more valuable to use time. Oncologists, palliative care, other adult specialties even, who may find it more resourceful. Here's another question that you might find interesting. Should we start having our nurse practitioners room their own patients so we can include that in the total time on the date of the encounter. Now that's a very interesting question and very thoughtful um, because here's the thing, I see where they're going, but we need to consider that the whole purpose here is that it is medically necessary time that we should be counting. And okay, while we can count the total time on the date of the encounter, if we change the whole flow and structure of the office to have the nurse practitioners now rooming their own, own patients, you're realistically adding maybe one or two minutes to the total time of the nurse practitioner's visit. So realistically, we need to stop and think, 
what are we really trying to accomplish here, okay? Can I include the time of completing disability forms? That's a really good question, but we have to remember that the AMA says that if there is a CPT code that covers the service, then we cannot include that service in our code, uh, in the total time. So since there is a CPT code for completing disability forms, then the answer would be no. It doesn't mean that even though that code may not often be reimbursed, reimbursement rules have nothing to do with this if there is a CPT code. So we cannot carve out other services out of that total time. Another question, is it required to document start and end times along with the details of what was done during the reported total time? Now, it is suggested that you do include a justification statement of what the total time included. Um, you're wanting to essentially include a statement that defends that total time. Um, if you spend 45 minutes with a patient with strep throat, we're all going to scratch our heads and wonder why you spent 45 minutes with a patient with strep throat. However, um, we don't necessarily need start and stop time. However, you should check each individual carrier and especially watch those MAC carriers for any change in guidance as far as that goes. The last question here, what about additional time use of a translator? Um, while we can't count translators, can't bill for translators, we can certainly count additional time that's needed for those visits. Um, so yes, you could certainly um, include that additional time that is needed for um, that use with the translator. Documenting that additional resource time would certainly be something that you could include. Um, just think about all of those different resources. The key here is making sure that our providers include documentation as to what the justification was for that total time. And I think, Dr. Reamer, that's about everything for today. Thank you, Shannon. That was terrific. That was Shannon DeConda. Shannon is the founder of the National Alliance of Medical Auditing Specialists and a partner at Doctors Management. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And again, Shannon, thank you so very much. You're listening to Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Consider the broad range of learning needs for everyone in your organization involved with coding, reimbursement, and compliance. Outpatient and inpatient coders, billing staff, CDI specialists, auditors, and compliance officers. Now envision one place where you could satisfy all these needs through webcasts, ebooks, coding charts, premium news content, and more. The resources in this centralized hub would be accessible from any location at any time with any device for one affordable price. There is such a place. It's the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Get unlimited access to every MedLearn Media resource contained in the libraries of MedLearn Publishing, ICD-10 Monitor, and Rack Monitor, all from one convenient location. View content whenever it's convenient for you from any location on the device of your choosing. It's the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Subscribe today.
What's it like to survive the deadly coronavirus and live to talk about it? That story's next. But here now with the results of today's Talk to Enthusiast listener survey. Once again, here's Lori Johnson. Thank you, Chuck. And here are the results of the listener survey. The question was, what are the topics of denials for moms and babies? The answers were A, infant of diabetic mother, 7%. Meconium staining, 7%. Complication of birth mom is 10%. Birth complication for baby is 8%. Something else is 8%. Unknown is 28% and does not apply is at 32%. So I would love to get more comments from you uh, regarding denials on moms and babies. So please feel free to send an email to me. So with that, Chuck, I will turn it back to you. Thanks, Lori, very much. Deb Greider is with us today. Deb is a COVID-19 survivor, what is known as a long hauler. So good morning, Deb. A long hauler, I hope you're feeling much better today. And tell us, what are some of the symptoms you and other long haulers might be experiencing? Well, good morning, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. Yes, um, you know, long hauler symptoms are real. And um, if you think about it, um, right now, as of this morning, there have been 42,690,413 people who tested positive, not just the ones that didn't test or unconfirmed, but that's just tested positive with COVID-19. Now, they may have been asymptomatic. They may have had mild, moderate, severe COVID, but even asymptomatic patients can suffer some of these conditions, either short-term or long-term or even for life. So some of the problems that we experience as as, uh, COVID survivors, and I'll give you some examples of things I've, I've experienced as well, Brain fog was a big one initially after I started recovering, Um, confusion, depression, PTSD, and that still is an ongoing thing that I struggle with, headaches, loss of smell or taste. Now, I didn't lose my smell or taste, but food doesn't taste the same. And, you know, I used to love bread, and I've written an article that's on uh, the ICD10monitor.com, and I talked about the fact that it makes me nauseated now. I can't even stand to smell bread. Um, and that's something that was new prior to. It's probably a good thing because of the carbs. But uh, anyway, that's one of the problems I su- uh, suffer with. And chronic cough, I still have that as a symptom. Um, I've had some um, pulmonary symptoms, shortness of breath. Lung scarring is one of the uh, conditions that can occur chronic fatigue, and I used to have chronic fatigue. I have occasional fatigue, but some of these conditions can wax and wane. So, you know, they can be at the forefront, and then they go away, and then they return. Chest pain, cardiac conditions, myocarditis, arrhythmias, uh, neurological conditions, myalgia, joint pain, kidney kidney dysfunction, uh, GI issues such as nausea, vomiting, things like that. Um, those are some of the most common conditions with chronic fatigue being the most common. And about 10% of people, according to um, the research, will suffer as a long hauler. Now, that's going to affect our healthcare system. It's going to exhaust resources. It's going to cost money with medical bills. It's going to cost insurance carriers and hospital facilities alike. So it's not something that is going to be something that goes away when the pandemic ends, and hopefully the pandemic will end fairly soon. 
So one of the things that we run across as a patient is difficult for practitioners to treat us because they're not sure, you know, if they can't confirm what these symptoms are related to a specific disease, it's hard for them to treat us, and sometimes they're just guessing. But there's some good news. Currently, we have 44 states which have started COVID-19 recovery programs or clinics for us long haulers, and there are support groups. And I get messages all the time from people within the support groups asking questions, wanting to just express how they're feeling and see if you are feeling the same way. So those are helpful as well. The other thing that's really good news on the horizon is that we have an initiative right now. The National Institute of Health just launched a COVID-19 Recover Initiative, which they awarded $470 million to support large-scale studies to help COVID-19 long haulers. And they're going to evaluate tissue samples from patients, look at autopsies, analyze data. They're going to look at millions of electronic health records and use smartphone apps and wearable devices to gather real-world data from COVID-19 survivors in real time. And the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, New York University, and Mass General have been selected as the three core sites, and Mayo Clinic has been given $40 million to curate, collect, and store distributed clinical samples. So if you're a long hauler and you're interested, look at my article, read my article, and at the bottom is a link or a website address that you can go to if you're interested in finding out more about these clinical trials. And the last, lastly, we do have a new ICD-10 code U09.9 for post-COVID-19 conditions unspecified. This is for the long haulers. So for us long haulers who are still having symptoms, physicians can report that, and I encourage them to do so. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Deb, very much. That was Deb Greider. Deb is a senior healthcare consultant with Karen Zucco and Associates, and be sure to read Deb Greider's article on her experience as a long hauler. It's in today's ICD-10 monitor. Now's the time for a very popular segment here at Talk 10 Tuesdays. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Your turn, Dr. Reamer. Thank you. Yes, U09.9 is coming October 1st, and we can't wait. Um, So I read an article in JAMA which intrigued me called Physician Use of Stigmatizing Language in Patient Medical Records. When I teach my documentation course to providers who've gotten in trouble with their medical boards, I instruct them that they must tell the truth, but they should consider how their words may resonate with the patient. According to a provision of mandated medical transparency afforded by the 21st Century Cures Act, it is required that patients have access to their own medical record. Does this and should this affect how the provider documents the encounter? And does the way we document affect other caregivers? The study's findings were that negative language was often implicit and fell into one or more of five categories, questioning patient credibility, expressing disapproval of patient reasoning or self-care, stereotyping by race or social class, portraying the patient as difficult, and emphasizing physician authority over the patient. They found that positive language was often more explicit and fell into these categories, direct compliments, expressions of approval, self-disclosure of the provider's positive feelings towards the patient, minimization of blame, personalization, and highlighting patient authority for their decisions. The premise is that negative perception of groups of patients may affect the quality of care and may be reflected in the language used to describe the encounter in the medical record. Two examples offered were the use of the word sickler, 
demonstrating an implicit negative attitude towards patients with sickle cell disease, and using the phrase substance abuser as opposed to a patient having a substance, abuse, uh, substance use or disorder. They posit that bias can be perpetrated throughout, I'm sorry, can be perpetuated throughout the medical record and can sway how future caregivers perceive and treat patients. This article made me think of a paradigm shift I have seen recently and have embraced, where media persons refer to the enslaved as opposed to slaves. The former expression conveys a sense that something was forcibly perpetrated on the individual in contradistinction to them actively or volitionally accepting the role of servitude. Another language shift we have all experienced is shunning the expression committed suicide. The generally accepted term now is died by suicide. The word commit evokes criminality, like committing murder or adultery. How we document things and the language we use matters. The article details doubt markers which conveyed suspicion or distrust about the authenticity of symptoms or the patient's adherence to prescribed treatment, like using words like supposedly, claims to, or alleges. Other behaviors which were disparaged in the study were scare quotes, racial or social class stereotyping, adjectives which impart condescension or frustration, and paternalistic language. How does this impact the provider-patient relationship now that the patient has access to their own electronic medical record? An article regarding the impression patients have of outpatient notes found 10% of patients reported feeling judged and or offended by something they read in their notes. These patients often had diagnoses in the social determinants of health category, such as unemployment or financial hardship. Does this mean that clinicians should stop documenting words like obese, anxious, depressed, and or elderly? My advice is that practitioners must tell the story and tell the truth. If a patient is morbidly obese or clinically depressed, this must be reported in the condition addressed. However, it may take a few extra moments to critically analyze documentation from the perspective of the reader and try to avoid offense. As healthcare providers, it is our responsibility to try to minimize the effect our unescapable biases have on our decision-making and to rise above our prejudices. We are human after all. When we document, we should be aware of how we say things. We do not want to negatively influence subsequent caregivers to provide lesser care. Stigmatizing language should be avoided whenever possible, not just to avoid upsetting the patient, but to change how we think about and treat patients. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. That's going to be a wrap for our 477th Live Edition Talk to Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, Shannon DeConda, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, Deb Greider, who reported our lead story, and as always, thanks to our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, you can listen to all the Talk to Tuesday podcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporter with Talk to Tuesday and IC10 Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.